Well, good morning, Grace. As Kenny said, I'm Rob Price. Uh, my wife Mindy and I are members here at Grace. I get to preach every once in a while, and it's always a privilege to be with you. So as you know, we're preaching our way through the Gospel of Luke here at Grace, and our passage this morning is uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, if you'd like to turn there. It's a fairly typical scene for Luke's Gospel. I think maybe five different times uh, Luke records when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. Uh, also typical here in our passage, the common people are delighted and the religious leaders are offended. Uh, and then in our passage, right, Jesus also gives a couple brief explanations of what the kingdom of God is like. There are two main characters in this passage, the synagogue ruler and the woman who is healed. Jesus too, obviously. But it's these two characters, the ruler and the woman, that's what I want to focus on this morning. So I guess my sermon has only these two points. But then, right, to conclude our worship this morning, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So we'll talk about the ruler and the Sabbath. We'll talk about the woman and how she's healed. And then we'll celebrate the supper together. One, two, three. So Luke 13, beginning in verse 10. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your concern for our whole person. You sent your son not only to save our souls, but also to heal our bodies. And you gave us the Sabbath not to constrain us, but to bless us. Father, please help us this morning to rejoice in the glorious things that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Bible 
is the story of our lives. Of course, primarily, it's about God's work in this world, but we're in here too. The Bible is not just about other people way back then. It's also about us. And so what this means is part of reading the Bible well is finding ourselves in its story. So as we're reading and preaching our way through the Gospel of Luke, we should be finding ourselves in its characters and figures and events. For example, last week, Kenny asked us, which fig tree are you? Fruitful fig tree, barren fig tree, Uh, It's like back in Luke 8, uh, if you remember the parable of the sower and the different kinds of soils. There's pathy soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil. So the question is, which soil am I? Which soil are you? How fruitfully do we receive the word of God? Uh, A month ago, Luke 12, Jesus says, If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, He would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. Jesus is telling us that we're supposed to see ourselves in this master of the house. Why? So that we stay ready for when Jesus comes. Okay, you get the picture, right? So am I the prodigal son or his older brother? Actually, it's sometimes one, (laughs) sometimes the other, right? Uh, Am I the Pharisee or the tax collector? Again, Sometimes I'm more like one, sometimes I'm more like the other. So as we're reading through the Gospel of Luke, try to find yourselves in the characters and figures. See what lesson each may have for you. Personally, I prefer to be the good guy in the story. (laughs) If I can swing it, I want to see myself as the hero. So a couple of weeks ago, as I was reading this passage in Luke 13, it came as quite a shock when my heart went out to the ruler of the synagogue. (laughs) I thought, oh, this is not going well, right? (laughs) I identified with the religious hypocrite. Uh, I've been feeling the need to shift some blame, and so the person I'm going to blame is the prophet Jeremiah. His fault, not mine. Uh, I was reading, you see, a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah 17, and this is like 600 years before Jesus. God tells Jeremiah to tell the people of Jerusalem, Keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Okay, what God did, what God, uh, what had he commanded their fathers? Well, here's back from the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work at all. Nobody, not even your animals. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so the Sabbath is a day of resting from our work so that we can enjoy the holy blessing of the Lord. It's pretty simple. We stop working to receive the Lord's blessing. Now you'd think, right, that the people in Jeremiah's day would have been glad to observe Sabbath rest but apparently not. So Jeremiah gives them a couple options, two scenarios. Scenario number one, if you keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, 
riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall be inhabited forever. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two, but if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy, then I will kindle a fire in the city gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So, Jerusalem number one, prosperous, ruled by a son of David forever. Or Jerusalem number two, empty, exiled, and burned to the ground. What's the difference? Sabbath. Jerusalem in glory or Jerusalem in ruin? It depends on what you do with the Sabbath. Now, of course, what Jeremiah is talking about here is not merely not working on the Sabbath, right? He's talking about the whole attitude toward God that is embodied in Sabbath observance. You see, a person or a congregation or a people that knows how to rest from its striving to acknowledge and celebrate God as the source of all blessing, a people that knows how to love the Lord like that will also know how to love its neighbor. That's why keeping the Sabbath is key to keeping the whole law. Israel, you may know the story, was not keeping the Sabbath. Right? For centuries, the powerful had been exploiting the poor, oppressing the weak, doing what was right in their own eyes. They were using religion to turn a profit. Uh, thinking back to last week's sermon, right? God had given this barren fig tree of Israel not just one more year, but generations of patience and attention and manure, metaphorically speaking, right? Fertilizer, still no fruit. God was waiting for the fruit of justice in Israel, but all he saw was bloodshed. The time of judgment had finally come. So God took Jerusalem, had it burned to the ground, and exiled the survivors to Babylon. While in exile, the Israelites learned an important lesson. <laughs> keep the Sabbath. <laughs> right? You keep the Sabbath. If you mess with the Sabbath, things turn out badly. Right? If you don't orient your life towards God's grace by Sabbath observance, your whole life, your whole community is on the brink of disaster. So in our passage, pity this poor ruler of the synagogue. Right? This new hotshot rabbi Jesus shows up, and the synagogue ruler, synagogue leader, who, the guy who's in charge of things, he courteously allows Jesus to teach. Like in his own synagogue, he gives Jesus the pulpit. And then Jesus does something that looks like breaking the Sabbath. Jesus does something that looks like working. The synagogue ruler, he can practically smell the smoke, right? For all he knows, hordes of Babylonian orc warriors are just outside the city gates, okay? He freaks out understandably, I think. Okay, uh, thus far does my heart go out to him. But then he becomes a jerk and I want to punch him in the nose. So what goes wrong? What does this guy not understand? I think that what happens is he misses the internal spiritual heart of the Sabbath, right? Receiving and celebrating God's blessing. And so all he's left with are the external forms of not working and gathering. 
right? So he sort of has the means, but he's forgotten the end, right? The point, the goal. So the point of this Sabbath pattern, right? Six days of work, one day of rest. This pattern orients not just our weeks, but our entire lives, just like God's entire creation. It orients the whole of it toward the goal of Sabbath rest in the enjoyment of God. That's the point. Hebrews 4, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Friends, we are striving now, working now so that we can enter the enjoyment of God's own Sabbath rest. Like the goal of work is Sabbath rest. Work is pilgrimage, Sabbath rest is home. So what Sabbath observance teaches us, even as Christians, is this. We can make and earn and produce and achieve lots of great stuff in life. But the best stuff in life is received. Love, recognition, forgiveness, hope, life itself. The best stuff in life we can't earn, we can only gratefully receive. Observing Sabbath rest weaves this recognition into the pattern of our lives. We rest from earning to receive and celebrate what we did not earn. And that's why on the Sabbath especially we worship. We praise our Heavenly Father for giving us what we could never have earned and more than we can even imagine. That's the idea of the Sabbath. Now, for us as Christians, Sabbath observance, not about a particular day of the week, though clearly Sunday works pretty well, right? Sabbath observance, it's a weekly pattern of rest from our work to receive and celebrate God's blessing together, right? A weekly pattern of resting from our work to receive and celebrate God's blessing together. If we're doing that, we are keeping the Sabbath. Now, in our passage, most of the people there were keeping the Sabbath, They didn't stop their six days a week job simply not to be working. They didn't have a meeting just to have a meeting. Let me say that again. You don't have a meeting just to have a meeting. (laughs) Now, means are important, right? It's true. If you're going to concentrate for just a few minutes on God, you have to turn off notifications. But the goal of it all is what? To receive and celebrate the blessing of the Lord. That's the goal. Uh, Jesus, you may remember, says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? Sabbath rules exist for our blessing. We do not exist simply to follow Sabbath rules. Okay, but this synagogue ruler seems to think that the rules are the goal, that if you just follow the do-nothing rule, you're good. Oh, but if you start doing something, you've broken the Sabbath. Notice that by this logic, like if merely doing something is breaking the Sabbath, then the ruler might as well have condemned everyone there for coming to synagogue. You don't have to tell parents of young kids that getting to church on a Sunday is work. (laughs) If it's okay to drag kids to church on a Sunday or to synagogue on the Sabbath, if you're allowed to do that much work on the Sabbath, why not also a mere healing touch? (laughs) parents of young kids who made it to church this morning may good measure pressed down shaken together running over be put into your lap 
Uh, Jewish custom allowed you to show basic human concern for your ox or donkey on the Sabbath, right? If you can walk your dog on the Sabbath, then ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, be healed on the Sabbath day? You see, healing does not compromise the Sabbath, but perfects it. Jesus is not kind of bending the rules in order to bless this woman. No, he's doing supremely and precisely what these rules are there for. Now, the synagogue ruler, <laughs> it's kind of funny. He can't bring himself to criticize Jesus directly. You know, the miracle was actually kind of impressive. And so instead, he kind of, he grumps indirectly to the people. Right? There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days. <laughs> yeah, sure, right, as if healings just happened all the time. Right? Synagogue, open for healing six days a week, closed on Sabbath. <laughs> no, right, the goal Healing is the goal of the Sabbath. Healing is a stunning example of God's life-giving generosity. And here it is in the gathering of God's people where they can all see it and celebrate together. Okay, so how do we see ourselves in this synagogue ruler? Now, at some level, right, the synagogue ruler is trying to do something good, keep the Sabbath. But he's forgotten the point of the Sabbath and the bigger picture of God's blessing. Now, you can probably all remember times when you've missed the bigger picture of God's blessing because you're wrongly focused on lesser goods. I think of, like, I can't tell you how many family dinners I ruined when the kids were younger because instead of enjoying the divine blessing that these kids are to us, I was obsessing about table manners. <laughs> Hold over. Chew with your mouth closed. Get your elbows off the table. <laughs> That's a... That's me uh, ruling my own synagogue, <laughs> right? Really, Rob, which would you prefer, a loveless etiquette or a sloppy kiss? <laughs> but I was trying to think of something that might apply to us as a whole congregation. That is, some way that we might focus on something good, but something that isn't quite ultimate. And as a result, when we gather for worship, we might miss the fuller picture of God's blessing. The analogy here with the ruler of the synagogue is loose, but I think our zeal for a good thing could miss the bigger picture of God's blessing when it comes to abortion. Here's how. We are absolutely right to oppose abortion. And praise God for the many, many lives that are likely to be saved by the ending of Roe v. Wade. Amen? But our opposition to abortion is just one aspect of our broader commitment to the universal dignity of human life as made in the image of God, yes? We are not merely anti-abortion. We are anti-abortion because we are pro-life. You see, if we are merely anti-abortion, here's where we might struggle. We might struggle to minister to women who have had abortions. If all we focus on is the evil of abortion, and it is evil, who among us would ever risk admitting to someone else here at Grace, I had an abortion, or I pressured my girlfriend to have an abortion? If instead we are fully pro-life, if we focus instead on the dignity of all human life, we'll also recognize the dignity of those who have had or encouraged abortions, even of those who have performed abortions. They have not lost the image of God, and their lives need saving and healing too. We know that no sin is too strong for Jesus, even abortion. 
His mercy is more. And ministering to those who have had or encouraged abortions does not compromise our opposition to abortion, but perfects it. Friends, I think that as the particular issue of abortion becomes even more prominent in our culture, especially here in California, our opposition to abortion will be more compelling, more coherent, and more beautiful if it's part of a fuller commitment to the dignity of all human life. So just like the synagogue ruler needed to understand the reason for the Sabbath, to receive and celebrate God's blessing, we need to understand the reason for our opposition to abortion, the dignity of all human life. Now there's another character in our passage, and she tells our story too. Luke, uh, he's a doctor, you know, Luke the beloved physician. Dr. Luke gives us a fascinating description of this woman's problem. He says she is afflicted by, get this, a disabling spirit. A disabling spirit. The medical problem, Dr. Luke says, is spiritual. Now that may sound a little weird to us living like we do in a secular culture, right? We tend to think that the medical and the spiritual live in separate worlds. But we've still got some folk wisdom that sees them together. Like for example, when someone sneezes, why do we say bless you? Why do we like call down divine assistance? That's a distant memory that disease is not merely physical. Apparently in some Spanish speaking communities there are different responses to the first three sneezes. Yeah, sneeze once and it's salud, health, reasonable. Uh, sneeze again and it's dinero, I heard someone say it, money. <laughs> sneeze a third time, does anyone know? Amor, <laughs> love, <laughs> makes you want to keep on sneezing, right? So again, that's recognition that there's more to disease than genes and viruses. Okay, now Dr. Luke knows that there are physical causes to disease and to disability, but he also knows that something else is going on as well. This woman was physically disabled because of demonic oppression. Okay, this is, this is a little frightening, so I think it's really important here to see what this da- disabling spirit can't do. Like, where is this woman right now? She's at synagogue. And guess who's preaching? <laughs> Jesus. Here's the thing. If this demon were controlling her, that's the last place in the world it would let her go. Right? This shows the limits of its power. It's like Satan afflicting Job or Paul's thorn in the flesh. The demon brought external torment, but it did not have internal authority. The demon had bent her body, but it cannot control her mind. And this had gone on for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Health was not in her power. Healing is not something she could work to achieve. Mindy, my wife told me that at women's Bible study in spring, y'all memorized Psalm 146. Is that right? Anyone here from women's Bible study? Okay, Psalm 146. It's a beautiful psalm. And there's a verse in Psalm 146 that this woman would have known. Psalm 146, 7. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. Can you imagine how often this woman would have prayed this psalm? 
Lord, I am bowed down. Lift me up, Lord. Lift me up. Lord, all things are possible for you. Lift me up. For 18 years, she'd probably prayed like this, like sometimes with more faith, sometimes with less. But still, she prayed, even though God's answer all those years was no. And she prayed, Lord, I know that I will rise again in full health in the resurrection at the last day, but please heal me even now. And still, God's answer was no. But she did not abandon the faith. No, here she is on the Sabbath, faithfully participating in worship. Friends, that is remarkable perseverance. Now, what happens next is this. Jesus saw her. There's lots of people at synagogue, but Jesus saw her. He knew how she had suffered and how she had prayed and how she had waited. Jesus calls her over. You know, she's sitting with the ladies, Jesus is up front teaching, and he asks her to come forward. And you guys know, it's like awkward to get up from the middle of the row and make your way forward. Uh, and for someone who's bent over with disease, it's also painful. But the woman responds in faith. As she's coming forward, can you imagine what she must be feeling? Right, she desperately wants to be healed. And she probably knows Jesus could do it. But notice, Luke doesn't tell us that she asked Jesus to be healed. Maybe she's afraid of getting yelled at for supposedly breaking the Sabbath, right? Maybe she's afraid to get her hopes up, doesn't want to be disappointed. Maybe she thinks she should be content with the promise of future redemption, and so she feels ashamed that she still wants physical healing so intensely. As she's going from her seat up to the front, I mean, do you think it felt like it took forever, or was it like over in a blurry instant? Jesus, he pronounces her healed. Woman, you are freed from your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She received a blessing from Jesus that she could never have earned, and she glorified God. Right? She responded in gratitude and praise. That's what the Sabbath is for. One of the reasons Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. But often, as in our passage, before Jesus destroys the devil's work, he takes it and uses it for his own purposes. Like, that's what Jesus does here. Satan meant evil against this woman, but God meant it for good. All those 18 years, Satan, through this disabling spirit, was trying to crush this woman's faith. And all those 18 years, God was using Satan's evil to make her strong. God was training her in spiritual courage and loyalty and endurance so that by the time she actually meets Jesus, you wouldn't know that this little crippled lady sitting in the back was an elite, battle-hardened, spiritual warrior. You wouldn't know it. I think that's why Jesus adds these two short explanations of the kingdom of God. Beginning in verse 18, because Jesus had just healed this woman, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? See, Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom, that is God's gracious work in this woman's life, this began in earnest not when she was dramatically healed, but when she was first afflicted 
Like that's when the really intense spiritual training began. Jesus doesn't want us to think that the kingdom of God suddenly burst through those synagogue doors for the first time on that Sabbath morning. No, the kingdom grows unseen like a seed. It spreads mysteriously like leaven. That's what had been happening all those 18 years of her affliction. What happened that morning was that years and years of hidden kingdom work suddenly became visible in her healed body. But God had been renewing and refining her soul all along, even though no one else may have been aware of it. Friends, this woman's story is our story. The reason God inspired Luke's account and put it in the Bible is because Jesus' love for this woman is the same love that he has for us. So, all you daughters of Abraham, all you sons of Abraham, know this, Jesus sees you. Maybe nobody else knows what you're going through right now or have been going through for years, but Jesus knows how you have suffered and he knows how you have prayed, and he knows how you have waited. His kingdom, that is, his gracious work in your life, maybe no one else has noticed it. Maybe you're so bowed down that you haven't even noticed it yourself. But he has been at work behind the scenes to train you in spiritual courage and loyalty and endurance. All along, he's been making of you a true disciple. And someday, certainly at the resurrection, but maybe even physically in this life, Jesus will lift you up and you will glorify God and Satan will regret that he ever touched you. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart even over a long 18 years. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So friends, if there is disease or affliction in your life, even if your life just seems small and dull and weak and ordinary, don't lose heart. There's a kingdom in there. That's mostly how the kingdom works. Stuff's happening, beautiful stuff, even if you can't see it on the outside. And when, on occasion, God's beautiful secret kingdom work in your life suddenly becomes visible, share it with us. Testify from your own experience how the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. In a gathered congregation, you see, the Lord's particular kindness to one is a cause of rejoicing for all. That's one of the reasons why every so often here at Grace we have reflection services. The next one's October 2nd. So come and tell us the glorious things that Jesus has been doing for you so that we can all rejoice together. One final observation before we turn to the Lord's Supper. This woman died. Maybe it was a few years later, maybe 20 or 40 years later. But she died. Right? Every single person that Jesus ever healed physically, they all died. You see, disease is not the biggest issue we face. Death is, and the judgment that follows. What we need most is not healing, but resurrection. 
God has not promised believers healing in this life, but he has promised us resurrection in the next. Jesus says, this is John 6, if you want to look this up, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And here it is, I will raise him up on the last day. It's a promise. So by all means, pray, Lord, I am bowed down. Lord, lift me up. Lord, heal me. And if the Lord heals you, give him glory so that we can rejoice with you. But even if God does not heal you now, you can rest knowing that the greater enemy, death, has already been conquered. And if you are in Christ, you will rise in full immortal health in the resurrection on the last day. Miraculous healing right now would be amazing, but that's nothing compared to the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Sabbath is about grace. On the Sabbath, we rest from our earning to receive what we could never earn. The Lord's Supper is a picture of God's grace to us. We did not earn Christ's death for us. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we earned. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would the servers please come forward? Friends, if you are a Christian, if you are trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, this table is for you. Parents of young children, a blessing upon you. If your children are not yet ready for the Lord's Supper, we invite you to bring them forward to receive a prayer of blessing from the servers. And those of you who are not Christians, or who are clinging to known sin in your life, we ask you not to participate. But at the same time, we plead with you to renounce your sin, even now, and acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of your life, and then join us in this celebration of what our Heavenly Father has done for us. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So please come and feast at the Lord's Supper.